and welcome everyone. We want to welcome those attending online. We always have people attending online from literally all around the country. Uh, many of our own members on vacation, but others who uh, tune in and make this their church home from afar. And we're glad to have all of you. Uh, we are in our series halfway through officially today of looking at the book of Matthew as we study lessons from the master disciple maker Jesus himself. As our theme this year is As You Go. And uh, we want to talk about how did Jesus make disciples as he went? How do we do the same? Now, we're back to our uh, weekly quiz this morning. So very quickly, let's see how good you are. Question number one, in which chapter do you find John baptizing for the first time? And that's when one of the earliest chapters. And if you guessed chapter three, some of you are going, I didn't guess. Wonderful. Chapter three. And of course, we introduced John simply because the lesson this morning in chapter 14 begins with John. And so we're picking up on his life. Secondly, question number two, in which chapter does John the Baptist send disciples to Jesus to ask him if he is the Messiah? And the answer is this time chapter 11. We'll again pick up on that here in just a few moments. Question number three, in which chapter do you find the parables of Jesus? Last Sunday, chapter 13. All right, chapter, uh, question four, in what chapters do you find the Sermon on the Mount? This is one that I've pushed over and over and over again because if you know where the Sermon on the Mount is, you know a lot of the teaching of Jesus and it's found, of course, in chapters five, six, and seven. And then I hope no one misses this one. This is the easiest one of all. All right, are you ready? Easiest question of the morning. Question number five, when is Memorial Day? Now, there's a handful of you going, in September, and no, I mean, Labor Day, Memorial Day, which one is it? And of course, it's coming up next Monday, a week from tomorrow, May 29th, the beginning of summer, Labor Day, always the ending of summer. All right, we are in Matthew 14, uh, looking at the feeding of the 5,000, William uh, actually did a great lesson on part of uh, Matthew 14, which was Peter's walking on water for our seniors. And, and for the rest of us, challenging us, you know, what does Jesus teach us uh, through that wonderful mar uh, 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 miracle about, you know, what it means to follow him. And so we'll look at it just really briefly as we tied in to this particular story, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, here's the first thing I want you to know about the feeding of the 5,000. This is what most of us think of when we think of the feeding of the 5,000. It was one of these beautiful church picnics. You can see the basket has the five loaves, the two fish. It's a sunny day and the kids have balloons and they're playing out, you know, in the grass. What a wonderful thing to do. The ultimate of church picnics, the feeding of the 5,000. Only problem is, is that what this story is all about? I mean, I remember as a kid, literally in, in Sunday school, and you're sitting there coloring the little basket, you know. And, of course, back then, I was a big fan of, uh, of a character on TV. Anybody remember the character who said, a picnic a basket? Anybody remember? Yogi Berra. Not Yogi Berra. Yogi the Bear. Okay, two different, sto two different individuals. Thanks, Blake. Appreciate that. Yogi Bear and his sidekick... Boo-boo. All right. Some of the people are going, who? Okay. All right. But the picnic basket. What's fascinating about this particular story, it is the only miracle of Jesus 
performed by Jesus. You have the resurrection of Jesus in all four. But this is the only miracle Jesus performs found in all four Gospels. Why? What is it about this miracle that has Matthew, chapter 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6? Why do all four gospel writers focus on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? And here's what's fascinating about that. John's gospel is what I call the Paul Harvey gospel. It's the gospel of where John knows about Matthew, he knows about Mark, he knows about Luke, he knows all their stories. And so as he tells his miracle stories, all of his are different, except this one. Of the seven miracle stories that John tells in his gospel, he does repeat one of them. Why the feeding of the 5,000? What's going on here? And then there's these verses that you read and you go, okay, what, what, what is this all about? Here's one of them. We're going to look at two. There's, there's another one that I'm going to wait and, and use it later. But I want you to notice, this is Matthew 14, 22. After the feeding of the 5,000, here's what Matthew writes. Immediately he, Jesus, made, constrained, compelled, insisted, if I were to translate the word, forced the disciples to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Why would Jesus do that? Why make the apostles leave? But he does. Another one's found in Mark's account of Jesus walking on water, which happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. Look what Mark says. Matthew doesn't repeat it. He tells Peter's story instead. But look at what he says. And he got into the boat with them. This is after he goes walking across the water. The wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And then look at verse 52. One of those verses that just kind of got, you go, what? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts. Now look at this. Their hearts were hardened. Some translations had grown callous, were blinded. Their eyes were blinded. Uh, they were stubborn. They had closed their minds. Why? Why would the apostles be hard-hearted after witnessing a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000? And I think the reason is because there's something else going in the story. Something else going on that you need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all to get the full picture. And so if you don't mind, let's look at what we oftentimes think of this great church picnic and discover what really happened that day with Jesus. Matthew 14 begins with an incredibly difficult moment for Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous works are at work in him. Put very simply, Herod the Tetrarch, who is, he's the king over Galilee, a part of Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. His capital literally is just a few miles from Nazareth where Jesus had been raised. But Herod freaks out. 
when he hears what Jesus is doing. He is not simply casually saying, this is the John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. Oh, no. He, he is freaked out. Here it is like, what in the world is going on? This has got to be John. That's why he's doing these miracles. He's been raised from the dead. And, and so here it is kind of like, what in the world is going on? Now, what you need to understand is that Herod had arrested John way back earlier in Matthew chapter 4. It's what launched Jesus' ministry. As soon as John is arrested, Jesus heads up to Galilee and begins calling disciples. It's almost a transition moment for Jesus in his ministry. And so John's arrested. He's put in prison. You turn over to chapter 11, as we mentioned a few moments ago, and he's sending disciples to Jesus going, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? And of course, if you remember back when we looked at that a few weeks ago, I mean, John had been there. He had baptized Jesus. He had seen the sky opened up. He had seen the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. He had heard the voice, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And yet here John is, after, after weeks and maybe even months have passed, and now he's questioning, is this the one who I thought, What's to come? Or is there someone else? And so we get into the text. Matthew now tells us why Herod arrested John. Going back, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, brother Philip's wife. Now, that's a little odd. Why put John in prison because of Herodias, his brother's wife? Well, the reason is this. You see, Herod Antipas had gone to visit his brother Philip. And when he went to visit him, he was kind of enamored by, by Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, you need to put yourself back, back in the ancient world. I know this is going to kind of freak you out. But Herodias is the half-niece of these guys. Okay? And you're like, okay... An uncle marries his niece. Yes, in royal realm back then, they did that. Okay? Kind of blows our mind, but they did that. And, and here it's Antipas, and he's visiting his brother. He becomes enamored with Herodias, and they run off together. Herodias divorced her brother, uh, excuse me, her husband, to marry her husband's brother. And John goes berserk. Because Antipas is supposedly the king of the Jews. He's over Galilee, okay? And here he is violating one of the direct commands of the Old Testament. You don't have a relationship with your brother's wife. You don't do that. And so because of Herodias, and of course she's sitting there going, how long are you going to put up with this prophet calling us out? He, he's calling me out for heaven's sake. Do something. And so here it arrests John and puts him in prison. Here it has a birthday party. Many of you remember the story. If you've never read the story, he has a birthday party and invites all of his officials, all of his military commanders. He's got everybody there. And Herodias has a daughter from her first husband, Philip, named Salome. And Salome comes out and she dances. And it's probably not the, let's say, nicest dance that was ever performed, but it was such that by the time she finished dancing, Herod and, and, I mean, everybody's just like, wow. And Herod says, listen, what do you want? You want half my kingdom? I'll give you half my kingdom. You tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. 
I make an oath in front of all my officials. I'll give it to you. And Salome runs to her mother and asks her mother, what should, I, what should I ask for? And her mother says, the head of John the Baptist. And of course she comes in and says to Herod in front of all the guests, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod now is in trouble. And you've got to realize, Herod, Herod had arrested John, but he loved to listen to him preach. And he was a little bit afraid of him. He knew he was a prophet. But now because of his oath, because of the promise he had made, he's stuck. He said this in front of all of his officials. And so he sends word to have John the Baptist beheaded and brought to Salome who takes the head to her mother. The Bible tells us that his disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Now, that's the impetus for the story you're fixing to hear. They had just come and said, John's dead. Herod's beheaded him. Here's this sordid tale. And, and you can imagine Jesus' response. This is his distant cousin. This is when his mother had spent time with, with John's mother when they both became pregnant. This is the one who had baptized him. This is the one God had sent before him to prepare the way. Imagine Jesus when he heard the words that John is now dead and dead this way. You know it upset him. Even though he's God in the flesh, you know that this bothered him. And so you have Jesus, and Jesus is like, okay, we've got to get away. Notice, he withdrew from there in a boat to desolate place by himself. Now, he's not by himself. He's with the apostles. But, but Matthew's simply saying Jesus needed to get away, and so Jesus is going to get away. But the other gospel writers tell us that's not the whole story. There's something else going on. Look at Mark's account. The apostles returned to Jesus. Okay, Mark, what are you talking about? Jesus, you remember in chapter 10, he sent them out two by two? You know, I don't know how he paired them up. I love the chosen. They take Judas Iscariot and they put him with Simon the Zealot, that beautiful enemies together to go preach the good news. But anyway, Jesus had sent them out to preach. And so for now, for several weeks, they've been traveling in the synagogues all throughout Galilee. They've been preaching. They've been healing. They've been casting out demons. And they come back and they're like, Lord, you're not going to believe what happened. You're not going to believe the miracles we were able to perform. I mean, this is amazing. And when they get back, Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And then you see why. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure, not even to eat. In other words, the apostles are back in Capernaum. Jesus is there. People are coming bringing sick folks. Would you lay hands on them and heal them? They're, they're telling him, you're not going to believe the reception we got. As we went out and preached, it's incredible. In fact, people are coming to check Jesus out because of that. So busy that they don't have time to even sit down and grab a bite to eat. What's going on? Again, to understand everything that's going on, you need to remember what he sent them out to preach. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What? Now, here's where you've got to get out of your 21st century mindset. They're not out here preaching. God's fixing to set up the church. 
We're fixing to establish churches in cities all over the world. We're, we're going to bring the Gentiles in, and that's going to fulfill the, the plan of God from all eternity. They didn't know any of that. You see, when Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and all the guys are preaching, here's what they're preaching. The promises of God to Israel is fixing to be fulfilled. The messianic kingdom is breaking in among us. It's here. God is restoring Israel to her former glory. The tyranny of Rome is over. We're going to drive them out of Jerusalem. We're going to re, you know, retake the Temple Mount itself. There's not going to be foreigners there. We're going to become the world's superpower, and we're going to bring the Gentiles under the domination of God through the kingdom of Judah. That's what they thought. You see, their sermons were highly patriotic. In fact, you could say, lesson number one, messianic fever is at an all-time high. They've been preaching now for weeks, and everybody is, I mean, they are excited. And watch what happens. Here's the image. You know, the Messiah's on his white horse, and, 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 and... the rest of us are going to be behind him, and victory is surely ours. And so as word began to spread that Jesus and the apostles are going to the other side, I want you to look what happened. When the crowds, look at the word there, crowds, not crowd, crowds. There's tons of people here in Capernaum, all to see Jesus. And when they heard that he was going to the other side, they followed him on foot from the towns. I mean, word spread in the little villages all around Capernaum. He's going to the other side, and they take off to meet him. Now, y'all, I I need y'all to see what's happening. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is from the International Space Station, okay? One of their pictures. Capernaum's up here in the left corner of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to across about three to four or five miles. They're going to cross to the other side, which is desolate. They're trying to get away from the people. As soon as word gets out, people from all over around Capernaum, north of Capernaum, they hear it and they start going around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They're running. You say, how do you know they're running? Two things. Number one, no one even stops to get food. No one. Except one little kid who happens to have some food with him. 5,000 don't even stop to think, we need to take some food. Not only that, by the time they get across rowing, they're already on the other side. They have run around the Sea of Galilee, crossed the Jordan River, and they're waiting for him on the other side. All kinds of people. People with friends who are sick people who are wondering what's going on, and then those who are convinced it's finally here. John tells us it's Passover time, it's spring, a lot of green grass in the area. Here's what you see. It's not like you couldn't see Jesus going across. This is from Capernaum, across to what is today called the Golan Heights. And so when evening came, I mean, they get there, Jesus heals a lot of the sick, Now it's evening time, and when evening came, this is a desolate place, the disciples said, send the crowds away into the villages so that they can buy food. And Jesus said, no need to send them away, you give them something to eat. (laughs) What did you just say? 
You see, if you go over to John's gospel, again, it's Passover time, and, and Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we going to buy enough bread that these people can eat? Philip, you don't read a lot about Philip, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John has a lot about Philip. And Philip's like, Lord, I mean, even 200 denarii, eight months of salary work would not buy enough for everyone to even have a bite to eat. And then Andrew, and of course this is a beautiful part of the story. You're in Sunday school. Here's a little boy with this, you know, his five loaves and two fishes that his mother had packed. You know, here's a guy with five loaves and two fishes, as if Andrew is serious. I think Andrew's like, hey, we got, you know, a box of Captain D's here if you want it. I mean, it's a joke. And Jesus says it's not a joke. It's not a joke at all. Sit down, have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100, bring the five loaves and the two fish, and Jesus feeds the masses. And then something happens. Incredibly ominous happens. You see, you don't hear this story in Sunday school. A lot of times you don't hear it from preachers and teachers because we don't read all four Gospels. But something happens at that moment implications of the feeding of the 5,000. I want you to think for a moment. If you just sat down for a moment and began to look through the list of the implications, what do you get? Number one, 5,000 men have followed Jesus this deserted area. Now, I know some of, some of the Gospels say apart from men and women. And, and I think there's actually a debate as to whether that means not counting men and women or there's no men and women there. Uh, excuse me, women and children, not men and women, women and children. In fact, one of the gospel writers just simply said there's 5,000 men there. But you've got 5,000 men very quickly assembled in the Golan Heights ready to follow Jesus. Number two, they watch him heal the sick. Again, we're so used to it, it just shoots over our head. You have people for the first time who have come to see who this Jesus is, and they're watching him as he heals people with withered hands, open the eyes of the blind, as he makes people who can't walk, walk again. And they're going, what? Keep that one in your mind for a second. Jesus can feed a multitude with five loaves and two fish with 12 basketfuls left over. You want to talk about a feat. I mean, you take one little box of food and you feed enough people and then you got 12 basketfuls left over. That is astonishing. And then they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been expecting. And then it's time to what? It's time to what? And see, this is what most of us miss. I want you to think for a moment the implications. 5,000 ready to die for Jesus. 5,000 who are, if they're injured in battle, can be healed by the one leading them. 5,000 who can march without having wagons of supplies because their leader can multiply from just five loaves and two fish enough to feed masses of people. 5,000 who are convinced this is the Messiah who God promised to Israel. This is the one who's going to lead us to victory. What are they about to do? And John tells us, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. 
You ever notice that verse? Jesus is, he knows the talk. I told you this was him. It's time to make him king. He may not be ready to be king. He's going to be king whether he's ready to or not. It's time for us to go to Jerusalem, expel the Romans, proclaim the kingdom of God, and begin the renewal of the world. And Jesus knows this is not God's plan. So Jesus has got to get rid of the crowd. But before he gets rid of the crowd, he's got to get rid of the the leaders. He's got to get rid of the ones who are saying, let's let's make him king whether he wants to or not. Anybody want to guess who those leaders are? Who those 12 guys have been who have been preaching that the kingdom is here. God's fixing to drive out the Romans. We're fixing to restore Israel. It's going to go back to like it was in David's time. So what does Jesus do? Let me tell you what he did. He made Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. He made all 12 of his apostles get in a boat and leave. Now, I don't think he said, y'all might want to go to the other side. I don't think that's what Jesus said at all. I don't think the apostles said, oh yeah, we'll be glad to leave. I think the apostles are going, have you lost your mind? We've got 5,000 people. They're ready to follow you anywhere. Lord, what are you doing? Get in the boat and leave now. And they do. And they start rowing, and, and they're madder than old wet hen, as my mom used to say. Which explains this. Why their hearts were hardened, callous, blinded, stubborn, closed. And not only that, God... You ever been frustrated and then it's as if God is going to see? If you're frustrated now, let's see how frustrated you get now. I mean, like you're trying to get somewhere really fast and every red light catches you. Y'all ever had that one? I had a wedding yesterday up in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And I'm trying to get up there and let me tell you, I got past Gallatin and everyone who was in front of me thought the speed limit was 25. And I'm like, I'm trying to get to a wedding. If y'all could get out of the way, please. You know, red lights. I mean, sometimes God's kind of like, if you're frustrated now, watch this. And that's what he did to the apostles. Had a wind to start blowing. Lesson number two, our agenda may not be God's agenda. Wasn't for the apostles. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life that I'm like, God, if you would just do this. And God didn't answer my prayers because that wasn't God's plan. I think a lot of times we need to step back and say, okay, God, if you're not doing this, what are you doing? And we need to bring our line, our lives in line with God's plan instead of trying to get God's plan in line with our agenda. My thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Les Chapman struggled with that one. The apostles struggled with that one. I suspect all of us do. Jesus dismissed the crowds, went up to pray because that had been a very stressful moment for him. And then at fourth watch, middle of the night, the apostles are out there, the wind's beating against them, and Jesus comes walking on the water. You know, three, four o'clock in the morning scares the daylights out of them. I mean, they start screaming, it's a ghost, it's a ghost! And Jesus says, take heart, it is I. I hate that translation. I wouldn't say it is I. I would mess it up and say it's me. Okay? You English teachers are going, no, Jesus always got it right. I'm sure he did. You know, it's me. Don't be afraid. 
And of course, you have the story of Peter getting out and walking on the water and Jesus having to rescue him. William did a great job of tackling that one. But you know what? Sometimes, lesson three, we need our hearts shot back into rhythm with God's ways. You get older, sometimes you develop arrhythmia. You know, your heart's out of beat. Well, guess what? Our spiritual hearts get out of beat a lot. In fact, the way Matthew described it, we become, or Mark described it, we become hard-hearted. We become calloused. You know, we close God out. And sometimes God needs to say, guess what? I can wake you up. I woke them up. Take my word, you see a ghost, you'll wake up real fast. And, and, and that's what happened to them. And, of course, when they finally got in the boat after the Peter episode, says, truly you are. I mean, they worshipped him. Why? Because they finally realized it's time for us to get out of our agenda and God get into your agenda. And then I loved lesson number four. Jesus didn't give up on them. By the way, he didn't give up with them all the way through the Passion. Passion week, they're still like, Lord, what are you talking about? You've got to die. They didn't have a clue what was going on. After the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, Lord, are you now going to set up the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. I, I, I love Jesus sometimes when he's like, all right, holy, almost like a professional wrestling you know, tag Holy Spirit, you're it. See if you can convince them. And of course, on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were convinced. You see, I think sometimes we read so fast. We read over verses so quickly. We don't see what's going on in the text. It wasn't a church picnic. It was an attempted revolution that Jesus said, I don't work that way. And if you're going to follow me, you get in the boat right now and you leave and I'll deal with you later tonight as he sent the crowds away. Now that's a story worth telling. And so this week, read 14. Did I put 14 up there? I did. Read 15. All right, we just read 14. I thought I corrected that one. Pray for those in Hendersonville, Sumner County who don't know Jesus. All right, I fixed this and somehow it got unfixed. That's last week's. Fixed it this morning, Blake. I'm serious. I fixed it. All right. Stop focusing on the weeds. That's true. The one that should be there is get serious about getting your life in line with God's agenda. And then the last one, of course, is keep sattering seed. Actually, why don't you just get excited about telling someone a story perhaps they've never heard in the way all four Gospels tell it. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life. If your life has not been on God's agenda, and it's time for you to get on God's agenda. We'll have elders at the walls, elders up here, shepherds, their wives will be with them. If you have a need of any kind that we can assist you with, why don't you go to them right now as together we stand and sing.